This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you with support from the Equity Fund, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today we're continuing our series on LGBTQ teens in Maine. Last week was part one of my interview with inaugural poet and Maine resident Richard Blanco. Richard Blanco is the author of four books of poetry, one brief memoir about the inaugural poem, and two monographs. He's a civil engineer, the son of Cuban immigrants. He grew up in Miami and has been a professor at Georgetown and American universities. He now lives in Bethel, Maine with his partner, Mark. In part one of this interview, Richard talked about tracing his own awareness that he was gay back to memories of watching the $6 million man as a kid but then still living for years in a kind of gray period of knowing and not knowing, made even more complicated by the powerful homophobia of his grandmother. He also responded to the coming out stories of some of the teenagers that we featured in this series. Here now is part two of my interview with Richard Blanco. One of the things that so struck me about your poems is the love that you have for your family members, even your grandmother. You feel that yeah, from your yeah. poems. and I can't get away from it. Yeah, and I w- I'd like to ask you to read something else. This is a part of the seventh stanza of your poem, Abuela's Voices, My Grandmother's Voices, uh, Chronicles. And um, part of why this really touched me is it spoke to kind of that longing for that repair. So I don't know if you want to just set up for me where you are in sort of this section of it. Sure. I think that this is a, quite a long poem, and it was the first poem where I actually broached the subject of my grandmother. Um, and um, and this is the seventh stanza, which the poem moves from sort of, just takes clips of her voices and kind of like the queer theory poem, just the things she would say and sort of, ref- and then responding to them in my voice and trying to make sense and negotiate what it meant. And it's really interesting because every time I write a poem about my grandmother, the love does come in in a, in a weird way. It's like this, because um, I, I think what I'm trying to do is repair. Um, you know, I could sit there and stew, but my art is a way to find some resolution. And I think that's what the poem is ultimately trying to do. And this poem, this stanza comes later, and I think it's a more tender moment. Reaching to just above my elbow, I hold her by her elbow, steer her through the labyrinth of supermarket aisles. She looks up to me from her steps over the beige linoleum tiles, her eyes occluded sapphires, like a newborn. She repeats herself. I need frijoles, frijoles negros. Repeats how I once loved her and what, what happened. I mumble, nothing, nada. Rehearsing the talk where she is supposed to apologize and I accept she didn't know any better. But it's not the time. All she needs today is to find pan pan, leche, leche, and amor, amor. That's Richard Blanco reading from his poem, an excerpt from his poem, Abuela's Voices, a Chronicle, from his second book of poetry, Directions to the Beach of the Dead. Did you feel like you carried that longing for an apology for a long time? Um, yeah, I think it... Um... I think it came at that last minute, like I was describing with that, with that, I just, you know, unspoken, but, um, it was just the sense of, um, because it's this weird irony that my grandmother really, really sort of loved me and then hated me. (laughs) It's just like this, I think in the end, 
she might have been gay herself, actually. Um, of course, that's forensic psychology at this point, but um, um, I think there might have been that kind of connection on the other, sort of on the backside of the moon. <laughs> you know, there's the, the front face, but then I think in a way she was trying to work out her own issues as through me and, and this weird connection. And so, um, but yeah, um, there were moments um, with my mother that were difficult too. Um, because it's sort of you come out and then like, it's the pink elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you know, Mark couldn't come over, you know, there was a, for holidays and this kind of stuff and uncomfortableness with them until I think I was like, 30 and I just sat her down again and had coming out part two, <laughs> which was, How did that part go? which I said, look, I mean, again, this idea of maturity now is really, I mean, I'm like 35 now. It's like, please, like, um, he will be coming home for holidays. Yeah. And I just <laughs> yeah. said, Mark is the equivalent of my brother's wife. And if he doesn't come next, and, and I don't care, I don't, when you people get your story straight, get back to me, because I don't know who or what's going on or why you can't come, but get back to me. And if not, I may not come. I will choose whether I want to come or not, but right now, I'm not coming. So it took Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatnot. And it took about an hour and it was all cleared up. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and now it's a, and again, it's a generational thing, so it's funny because, you know, before she was afraid to even let him sleep over and then, and now I'm still respectful and I ask, you know, she's like and she's like it's her way of saying like, Yeah, but not in the same room. She's like, Yeah, the other room's all made up. <laughs> you know, oh, so, she did. So and, you know, oh. people come down on me like, Oh, you know, why shouldn't why couldn't it? it's like listen, she's come far enough and maybe that's something I think that that maybe the youth may want to understand. It's not an excuse for hatred or anything like that, but that some some generations have a certain limitation and, and I've pushed the envelope and every year it's, it gets better and better and better and better. <laughs> Even at this age, it's still getting better and better, <laughs> you know. Um, it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process and that, uh, but isn't becoming a person a lifelong process anyway? I mean, I think what the gift is of, in some ways of, of, of being gay for me is that you're, from an early age, you're taught to, to, uh, reflect on yourself and your life and you're and you realize you're always constantly trying to make yourself and and i think that it's no wonder to be stereotypic but it's no wonder that so many gay people become artists because it's that introspection and that questioning of the world and your place in it and who you are that's at the heart of art right so in some ways it's a blessing um that that questioning and sometimes those hard moments um, you know, to use another cliche, you know, what doesn't, what doesn't, what is it, what doesn't break you makes you stronger or something like that. Um, I was kind of wondering that whether you felt like coming out had sort of given you so much courage to face other things. And it, it sounds like in, in some ways it really, to face what you need to face artistically. Yeah, everything. I mean, I remember my, uh, one of my, my first lover actually and best friend, um, uh, he, when I was trying to come out to my mom, he's just like, he goes, once your mom knows, you will fear nothing in this world. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It was just like, nothing will be able to like, touch I don't you. care what you think. My mom knows. <laughs> if I had the cojones to tell my mother, I can pretty much do anything in this world. <laughs> That's really great. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit now about your dad. Um, 
one of my favorite of your poems is a poem that you wrote about him, but I, I understand that you came out after he had died. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I'd like to ask you to read, uh, a poem that you wrote for him. Um, and then I'll ask you the question after. Okay, you. So this sure. is, so this is, um, the poem, my father, my hands from your book, looking for the Gulf coast motel. My father, my hands. My father gave me these hands, fingers inch wide and muscular like his, the same folds of skin like squinted eyes looking back at me whenever I wash my hands in the kitchen sink and remember him washing garden dirt off his or helping my mother dry the dishes every night. These are his fingernails, square, flat, Ten small mirrors I look into and see him signing my report card or mixing batter for our pancakes on Sunday mornings. His same whirls of hair near my wrists, magnetic lines that pull me back to him, tying my shoelaces, pointing at words as I learn to read, and years later, greasy hands teaching me to change the oil in my car, immaculate hands showing me how to tie my necktie. These are his knuckles, rising, falling like hills between my veins, his veins, his pull at my wrists under the watch he left for me ticking since his death, alive when I hold another man's hand and remember mine around his thumb through the carnival at Tamiami Park, how he lifted me up on his shoulders his hands wrapped around my ankles, keeping me steady above the world, still. I love that poem so much. Ever since I read it, I've been washing the dishes and looking at my fingernails <laughs> like they were little mirrors. I mean, it really captures such a great, right. a great picture. Thank you. And I found myself wondering about that poem. You know, if it was almost a way of, when you say, you know, holding another man's hand, if it was almost a way of coming out to him after his death in a poem. Yeah, yeah I think that poem is a, is a confession in a way. I, what happened is, of course, um, my father from You Gather, from the other poems too, is a very emotionally di absent man and a distant man. So I never had an adult relationship with him. I never had a real relationship with him. Um, he died when I was about 22, so I never got to that that stage. Um, and in, in general, it was just like, I hate to say it, but he's like of that generation as well, which was like a piece of furniture around the house. Very loyal man, like very, you know, brought home the bacon, all the very, very a provider and all this stuff, but emotionally couldn't go there. Then again, my grandmother was his mother, so God knows what happened on that. <laughs> but, um, I, so in the poetry, I try to recreate him. I try to communicate with him. I try to take these little snippets of memories and have a have a conversation with him. And I think you're right. I think that that poem was um, was the first time I ever had a poem about my sexuality and my dad together. And and this is what I tried to do in the th in the middle section of this last book was explore those intersections of gender and sexuality and that big mess of like how do we besides our sexuality, how do we even identify gender and how do we play these roles and, you know, how do we, people take on these roles we are supposed to be as, even as a gay man, you know, like, which is another whole other topic, but how we get trapped into roles, gender and otherwise. 
and your father, I guess, trapped into this stoic, silent role. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the other poems you've written where you talk about being in a car ride with him and kind of like waiting for him to, to say, say something. something. <laughs> and it never happens, never. ever. <laughs> so like... poignant. You also write about forgiveness. And in, in, in your poem, Still Unfinished, you write that you've forgiven your grandmother. And, and in one today, your inaugural poem, there's one line of it where you say, some days giving thanks for a love that loves you back, sometimes praising a mother who knew how to give or forgiving a father who couldn't give you what you wanted. Right. And and what do you mean by that? When you say forgiveness, how did you get to the place where you could? Um, I should say in the inaugural poems, when I read it, actually, it's like forgiving a father who couldn't give what you wanted. <laughs> so it's just like something that you can only do orally, but it emphasizes your point even further. Um, um, I think... You know, I've been through a lot of psychology and a lot of therapy and things like that. And um, the only way that, that anything in the world makes sense is, uh, or I should say, the only way you keep from going crazy in this world is making sense out of things and making a positive sense out of things. With my grandmother in particular, that forgiveness came after several years, but realized that in some ways, you know, the light side versus the shadow side was in some ways she made me a writer. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did she? Uh, because of that intimidating me and making me this withdrawn child and becoming an observer of the world versus a participant and observing human nature and learning how to respond to people's unwritten, uh, unspoken uh, moods. Um, so I would survive emotionally. That's what writers do. <laughs> we sit back and look at people and put them in poems. <laughs> um, th- to become a, a, an observer of the world it was was in some ways a gift and so that was the the silver lining um with my father uh i just came to a point where i realized again you know that i was just as guilty as him in a way you know um i was just as quiet as him i am like him i can be very so quiet richard (laughs) what do you mean but i can be very emotionally distant in my really close relationships and um and so I connected with him and realizing, and I think that's what the hands poem is like, he's me and I'm him, you know, that there's more connection than I thought. And that we, in some ways we were both responsible um, um, for that absence, that we both were circling around each other. Um, there's another poem about my dad and uh, when he was in the hospital and watching this bridge um, from the hospital room and the, and the last line of that poem says, um, mem- with memories of a father and son holding hands and secretly in love, and I think that's that's like, like that's like the perfect for me description of my my relationship with my father. We were like sort of secretly in love with each other, <laughs> and by that I think we know we understand we're talking about platonic love, but like that um, we we're both circling around each other and we couldn't. Probably because of, of my own sort of inhibitions and knowing that I was gay and having that wall and that distance of the observer and probably whatever happened to his life, which I'm, I'm not, never got to really know his whole entire story. So in a way, what I'm hearing is that forgiveness almost means like stepping down from being in judgment, like stepping down from being one up to him, but really joining him. Yeah, certainly. And, there, and, and it has to go through a period. I mean, there was a period of like, oh, my dad was like, you know, but a process and evolution of really deepening and understanding your relationships. And, and it's hard when someone's passed away because it's all forensic, you know, it's all like, you know, you got to reconstruct. And I think the poetry has helped to analyze that 
uh, and myself uh, and him uh, a little bit better and get over the anger. You know, as a psychologist, that anger is, uh, what do they call it, a signal emotion yes. or something like that? It's a cover <laughs> for something cover else. cover for something else. More right? vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. It's a protective mechanism. <laughs> so a number of the kids are telling us about their anger. They're describing for us intense encounters with major prejudice or hate. And they're talking about what it's like for them to take it on, what it's like for them to try to change somebody's mind, to fight back with really good arguments. Um, so I had, there's a, there's a clip I'm not going to play for you because it's a little too long, but there's Sienna, one of the, uh, the young women that we interviewed was at a fundamentalist Christian school at the age of 12. And in her debate class, she found herself pulled into this debate about whether it's okay for women to love women and men to love men. And, and, she ends up being the lone voice at 12 years old mm. in the entire class saying that this was good, including her teacher who was, you know, telling her to read Bible verses and that, that as what she was told is that homosexual love was a sin as bad as any other sin, as bad as being a murderer or a rapist. This is heavy for right. a 12 year old, right? And she uh, holds her own against it, although she was very alone. And um, I'm curious to ask your evolution of taking stuff like that on like do you do you fight prejudice when you find it now do you do walk away because you don't want to deal with it like what's been the story yeah, of how your willingness front, to, yeah on that front um well, first of all this what's her name sienna she's obviously a very special person i thought so too at 12 years old i wouldn't even like even begin to be able to even say i wanted a glass of water <laughs> i wouldn't even be able to advocate for anything um, so hats off to her. Um, but, um, I think I, I, everything goes through phases and cycles. Um, once of course I came out, um, um, there was a period of still an internalized homophobia, right? That, that sort of, as a friend of mine said, you know, you, you have to come out every day when you're, when you're gay. I mean, every day is, you have to come out and some people assume you're straight. So, so there's always a little bit of shying away from that. Then I, once I got over that, then I was like, I got really active. I started, um, not really active. It's not totally my style in anything, but, um, I started writing for, um, I was part of Save Dade in Miami Dade, which was when we were trying to do the anti-discrimination ordinance, um, against housing and employment. I got active in that. I did interviews for papers, um, interviewed p other people and tried to mobilize and got into groups and things like that. And, um, and that was sort of easy enough because it was from a distance. Um, I've never faced anything, uh, as what was her name? <laughs> Sienna, Sienna, yeah. Sienna. I should remember such a beautiful name. Um, so, um, it was sort of a safe distance, but I felt I was doing my part and it felt great. It felt wonderful. Um, it felt like I was, it was a way of empowering myself as much as the cause in a weird way. It was a way of finding a tribe. It was a way of connecting with people and, and getting to know not just gay men, but lesbians and all, you know, all this and whole other lives and realizing there's a whole community, right? That's part of it um, that I think was very empowering. Um, in my later years, I think um, what I've tried to do um, besides writing a check or things like that or supporting things in interviews and, and things of this nature is um, I've just promised myself to never, ever fake it. <laughs> and so even when I came to Bethel, a small town like this, which I'm not sure you can really fake it here because everybody knew when you're coming out here, it's like my form of private sort of activism is like, this is who I am. 
and I'm not going to dance around it. Um, and I don't, I don't even need to say it to you. Just look at me. <laughs> um, sometimes we have like real rowdy repairmen in here in the house and, and carpenters and stuff. And, and I, and by the end they're like, um, so what are you Mark going on vacation? <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> and it's because I've never given an affront to anything else except this is my life. And if you like it, fine. If not, go to hell. <laughs> uh, which is not quite, you know, it's not quite changing minds, but I think, um, I think there's a lot to be said by leading by example. I think that's an, an analogy in a way, um, um, that certain confidence that you exude when you meet people and, and not shying away from your life, I think goes a long, long way. Um, and so that's and mostly what it. I've done. Yeah. People feel it. And being there for people like, like, you know, like hopefully I am here today for some, for some for some kids and, um, and the work. I mean, also my pen is my, you know, in some ways my sword. Um, yeah. In one of the interviews that we did with Kyle, uh, a gay high school student, he talked about being, being able to really end bullying that had gone on for years by kind of getting to that place of just communicating so powerfully that it was over. And, and I sort of sense what you're talking about, like the, the power of just communicating who you are without needing to always have to say things. Yeah. So I would love to end with a love poem that feels only fitting. Sure. This is a poem thicker than country from Richard Blanco's third book of poems, Looking for the Gulf Motel. And why don't we start by you telling me a little bit about it? Sure. Um, this poem was written sort of in response to uh, the question I'd get asked all the time around Bethel, what the hell are you doing here from Miami? <laughs> like, why did you move here? And uh, I found it, in, I started understanding that what the poem eventually led me to, but also sort of the intersection between, uh, again, this idea of cultural sexuality. So you know, there I am gay. And on top of that, I marry un Americano because <laughs> he doesn't speak Spanish. Therefore he's American. <laughs> so I don't know what was worse. <laughs> it was like a double whammy from double my, betrayal. For, for the family, right? Yeah. Which is great. Cause my mother-in-law and my husband can never talk. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just having sort of a loving moment and fun with, with that whole, all those concepts. Thicker than country. A Cuban like me living in Maine. Well, what the hell? Mark loves his native snow, and I don't mind it, really. I love icicles, even though I still decorate the house with seashells and starfish. Sometimes I want to raise chickens and pigs, wonder if I could grow even a small mango tree in my three-season porch. But mostly, I'm happy with hemlocks and birches towering over the house. Their shadows like sundials the cool breeze blowing even in the summer. Sometimes I miss the melody of Spanish a little, and I play Celia Cruz, dance alone in the basement. Sometimes I miss the taste of white rice with picadillo, so I cook, but it's never as good as my mother's. I don't miss her or the smell of Cuban bread as much as I should. Most days I wonder why but when Mark comes home like an astronaut dressed in his ski clothes, or I spy him planting petunias in the spring, his face smudged with this earth, or barbecuing in the summer when he asks me if I want a Hamburg or a cheeseburg, as he calls them, still making me laugh after 12 years, I understand why the mountains here 
are enough. White with snow or green with palms, mountains are mountains, but love is thicker than any country. Richard Blanco reading a poem from his book, Looking for the Gulf Motel. We have time now for one more love poem before we end today's show. Here's Richard. So uh, this poem, Killing Mark, at first, when I first wrote it, I thought it was a very gay poem because it's about my relationship with Mark. And um, when I read it here in Bethel, and as I've read it across the country, it seems to be a really, everybody's sort of one of everybody's favorite poems. And it's kind of like where my own sort of poem taught me something. And, and I realized that people are connecting with it because it's really, they're seeing a relationship as a relationship, gay or straight. And so people are responding to it as gay people, as straight people, as whatever. And it's all about the that we're all we're all the same in a marriage. We all have neuroses and and psychoses. And this one is mine, which is but this uh, this fear that the poem speaks of. Killing Mark. His plane went down over Los Angeles last week again, or was it Long Island? Boxer shorts, hair gel. His toothbrush washed up on the shore at New Haven, but his body never recovered, I feared. Monday, he caught off his leg chainsawing, bled to death slowly while I was shopping for a new lamp, never heard my messages on his cell phone. Where are you? Call me. I told him to be careful. He never listens. Tonight, 15 minutes late, I'm sure he's hit a moose on Route 26. But maybe, maybe he survived. Someone from the hospital will call me, give me his room number. I'll bring his pajamas, some magazines. 525. Still no phone call. Voicemail full. I turn on the news, wait for the report. Flashes of moose blood, his car mangled as I buzz around the bedroom, dusting the furniture, sorting the sock drawer again. Did someone knock? I'm expecting the sheriff by six o'clock. Mr. Blanco, I'm afraid, he'll say, hand me a Ziploc with his wallet, sunglasses, wristwatch. I'll invite the officer in, make some coffee. 625, I'll have to call his mom, explain, arrange to fly the body back home. Do I have enough garbage bags for his clothes? I should keep his ties, but his shoes? Order flowers. Roses, white or red? By 7.30, I'm taking mental notes for his eulogy, suddenly adoring all I've hated, 10 years worth of nose hairs in the sink, of lost car keys, of chewing too loudly and hogging the bed sheets, when Joey, our dog, yowls, ears to the sound of footsteps up the drive and darts to the doorway. I follow him with a scowl. Where the hell were you? You couldn't call. Translation, I die each time I kill you. Thank you, Richard Blanco. 
I've had such a pleasure talking Good. with you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. So I've been speaking with the poet Richard Blanco about his experiences coming out as gay and writing so many poems about that and his family. Many of these poems can be found uh, in his book, Looking for the Gulf Motel, and he's currently working on a new memoir, which will be out in November. If you got a chance to only listen to part of this interview and you'd like to listen to all of it, you can hear it at our website, safespaceradio.com. You can also email the link of it to a friend, and you can subscribe there to get a weekly email with the link to that week's show. You can also download us from iTunes, and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show. Betsy Parsons, a leader at GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, who's helped put this series together. Jim Russell for being our consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the intro music. Coming up next is Speak Freely.